Hello, and welcome to the Guardian Test Prep Back to Basic Podcast. My name is Dr. Christopher Seitz. I'm an emergency physician, and I'm here with my brother, Jason Seitz, who is a firefighter, paramedic, and RN. Together, we run Guardian Test Prep, an NREMT test prep company that specializes in helping EMT and paramedic students pass their national registry exam. Our Back to Basics podcast was created to make what are sometimes complex medical topics easy to understand and retain for students of emergency care. Please like and follow us on your favorite podcast streaming service, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for joining us. So there's two things that have been bothering me. So when I was in school, the planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, right? Those are the planets. Except then they decided that Pluto wasn't a planet anymore. We didn't yeah. just decide it. They found out that it wasn't. How did you just find out? You... Because it wasn't large enough or didn't have a gravitational okay. pull. In so the way anyway, there. that's not fair. Second... Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, right? They changed that too, I found out. What did they change that to? I don't know. I still remember the old way. So it's just irritating to me because one, what is real? And two, science clearly isn't real. So let's talk about medicine. What? <laughs> you don't know the change? You really don't know the no, change? No, I don't know what it is anymore. Did they take something out or add something in? Who knows? Nothing makes sense. Science is not real. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have the planets memorized in that way or the order <laughs> exactly. memorized in that way. I think that's useless knowledge anyway. It is. You know what I can tell you about? What Mace Windu uses <laughs> no. in terms of force ability. That's where my knowledge goes. There you go. All right. Anyway. Well, welcome everybody to the Back to Basics uh, podcast with Chris and Jason, uh, sponsored by Guardian Test Prep pretty much every time because we are also Guardian Test Prep. If you're studying for your National Registry exam, Check us out, guardiantestprep.com. We've got everything you need to help you pass that exam. But what if uh, you're not studying for the exam, Chris? And what if you need continuing medical education credits? I'm glad you asked. So we are super excited. You guys have probably heard us talk about it before, but we are super excited that it is finally time to launch Guardian CME. Guardian CME, guardiancme.com is 100% free CAPSI credits. This podcast, uh, content from EMS 2020, EMS on Air, other great content contributors are all going to be hosted on guardiancme.com. Capsi credits for all of it, and it is 100% free. What does Capsi credit mean? Go ahead. Well, it's easy. <laughs> it doesn't matter what state you're in or what country you're in. You will get approved to use this CE. So hypothetically, like every, every state's different. Here in Michigan, we're a little bit different than Ohio and Illinois and, and so on. I'm not going to name all 50 states. Another thing I didn't like. <laughs> but basically... Um, you can find a credit with the topic area that you need it in, and then you can submit that to your state. And um, 99.9% of the time, your state's going to say, hey, CAPSI, we trust that organization. You're good to go. So think of it as a uh, universal credit. Mm -hmm. So you will always be good to go, no matter what state or country you're from, yeah. to and, get your education. like I said, so if you want to register on there, again, 100% free for now until we realize we can't afford it anymore. <laughs> no, so it's guardiancme.com. Basically you're going to like you're going to make up a, a sign in. You're going to put in your NREMT numbers, your state license numbers, all that kind of stuff. That way we send all that information automatically to CAPSI. Uh, so they have record of all that. You're going to get a certificate at the end of each piece of content after you take a quiz. Like I said awesome resource. We're super excited about it. December 13th is our tentative official launch date that should be the day that of you should 2021 see of 2021 yes so if you're listening to this in the future you should be listening to this on the lms for a free sure, ce exactly. and that is the cool thing about it so the, so guardiancme.com is not just a cme website uh guardian has built out our entire own learning management system 
Uh, so basically that content is housed there and just, like I said, a great resource, lots of great content providers on there. Uh, we're excited to be pushing that out and hopefully, uh, if you're listening to this and you want to get credit for it, go check it out over there, take a quiz and get your credit. Or if you're sick of listening to us, there's other people on there too. That That's you true. For credit. That's so, true. So awesome. So today's topic, we're, we're kind of starting like a, a three-part series. You said right five minutes ago, guys, he said, don't say that this is a three-part series because we're not going to do these back-to-back. Well, I was just going to say, that's what I was going to say. It is a three-part series, yes. but they're probably not going to be released back-to-back. We might have a, you know, we might have a Q&A. We might have another, we have some, you know, we want to kind of link up with EMS 2020 and EMS on air, maybe share some of their stuff. So this is one of three parts, but it's not going to be released back-to-back-to-back. Pediatric assessment. Yes. Part one. That's not really pediatric assessment part one. It's just pediatrics. Part one, assessment, semicolon, <laughs> are you ready? Right. Perfect. Got it. Awesome. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what we're going to talk about today? So today we're going to be talking about pediatric assessment. And what we uh, like to do is kind of we take what we've learned from PALS, from PEP, from courses like PHTLS, things where we kind of learn pre-hospital care. And we've kind of put that together into a simple, easy to digest way to assess, a, approach a pediatric patient, assess them, and then quickly get to the intervention phase, Right. We know that children, babies, um, young adults are not just small versions of adults. Like that's something we learned very quickly in medicine. Mm -hmm. We do have to treat things differently and we have to kind of approach these patients in a different way. So we're going to break down that kind of assessment chain for you uh, to make it easier. In our following uh, two parts, we will start covering kind of the major emergencies that we see from pediatrics and how to kind of just... uh, break those down into simpler, easy, manageable chunks so you can kind of have a little bit more of a checklist on scene. Because I think a lot of people get really nerved out about pediatric calls. When we did like our OB-GYN lecture, we we talked about that a lot too, mm-hmm. where it's like, you know what, people like, as much as it, it's easy to deliver a baby and stuff like that, people tend to be a little bit nervous because we see a very small percentage. It was funny, we had a training at my fire department recently where uh, one of our other ICs was teaching the class his name is Damon. He's a great guy, good friend of mine. And he was breaking down our calls for this year. And he said, you know, we've had 4,000 calls. And out of those 4,000 calls, we've had 100 pediatric calls. And out of those pediatric calls, I, I'm generalizing the numbers, but out of those pediatric calls, the ones that were critical, there's five. <laughs> so yeah, it's like yeah. in a year, you know what I mean? At, at a fairly, like I have a smaller department. So 4,000 calls is a lot for the amount of people we have. But for a fairly busy department to only run on five, you know what I mean? And you got to be the, the person who happens to be on that call that day, you know, it, it is still a very much low frequency, you know, high danger event for us in, in terms of treatment. And, and that's true in the emergency department as well. So I worked in multiple emergency departments throughout the country. And like I said, some, some emergency departments don't even see kids, right? They have a separate pediatric emergency department. But for the community right. hospitals I've worked at where you're seeing adults and kids, usually a general rule is that 20% of what you're going to see are kids in the emergency department. Now, that's not sick kids, right? That's kids with an earache and, you know, need right. stitches. And so again, the the goal here when we talk about this assessment approach is basically the key because we're talking about emergency medicine, the key thing we're trying to figure out is is this kid critically ill or not critically ill? Do I have time or do I need to intervene immediately? And really with the the entire goal behind starting our assessment this way, is to prevent kids from going into cardiac arrest. Exactly. So again, as we build this out, you'll you'll see us. We'll talk about some of the the really the two things that can push a kid into a cardiac arrest type of situation. Now, based on this assessment, are you going to 
be able to diagnose everything a kid has? No. Are you going to be able, though, to say, hey, this kid is sick and I need to intervene early? Or, hey, you know what? I think we've got time. We can get him to the hospital. We can you know, have someone else take over care. Yes. And that's kind of the main goal yeah. of this assessment. Technique. And it's, it's the most common and it's the most, you know, we're going to take the emergencies. Like when we break down airway emergencies in a couple of weeks here, like we're going to take the most common airway emergencies. Now, is this every single thing that can happen to a kid? No. Right. right. But it's going to give you the most common. It's going to kind of give you these treatment modalities for kind of checking those boxes and making sure that you can take care of anything before we get into the assessment portion. I do want to just talk a little bit about like why kids are so different than adults and, Talk about maybe how how they compensate. We you know we know that they compensate a little bit differently. Yeah. And they're smaller. <laughs> that, that is one thing that's very different. They are smaller, Chris. I'm like nailed it. Um, but what are some other big changes that we see with kids? Sure. So a couple things we see with kids is one like you like you already mentioned their compensation, right? So children, I guess we will say, compensate much more much more better. They compensate much better than adults do. Um, probably for a longer period of time before they start to decompensate. Yeah, two things there. Right, much better, and for a longer period of time. Right. right? Exactly. So like we always we always talk about when we're when we're teaching lectures and stuff like that. Like what's the difference between me and a, and a little child when it comes to circulation and and compensation? Like what their vessels can do versus mine. Mm-hmm. Well, thirty years of eating a bunch of crap, right? Burger King, McDonald's, whatever, right? right. So this child typically has. Uh, an incredible circulatory system in the sense that it can compensate for its lack of blood pressure by constricting those vessels and shifting fluid a lot better than someone like I can. Exactly. And the thing is, is that because they can compensate for a longer period of time, and this is like, when we say longer period of time, I'm not actually talking about like set minutes. I'm, I'm you know, it's not like an adult can compensate for an hour and a kid can compensate for two. Sure. We're talking about based on the mechanism of what's happening. How healthy the, they look. Yeah, for, if the same thing was happening to an adult, they wouldn't be able to compensate probably from a circulatory standpoint as long as a child can. But that being said, when they start to decompensate, they decompensate much more quickly than an adult does. Correct. And that's why this assessment strategy uh, that we're talking about why we're emphasizing pediatric assessment is so important because if your kid is decompensating you're v- you're you're very far behind the eight ball in that way in the sense that like you don't have much time now with an adult you'll see their blood pressure get soft you're right what we say like soft blood pressure like oh now it's in the 90s now it's in the 80s now it's in the kids will have like normal blood pressure and then just not, not have a heart rate anymore <laughs> right. i mean they, they, they decompensate so quickly so again so much emphasis now assessment is always an emphasis we put on on all patients including adults but especially in kids going through something systematically like this and really assessing to really figure out, are they sick? Are they not sick? Are they compensating? Are they decompensating? It's critically important because when they start to decompensate, it will happen fast. Yeah. And I think an easy way to put this is that if you identify through this assessment that a child or infant is, has impending failure, you will see failure. Sure. You know yeah. I mean? If you see, if you sense impending failure, you will see failure. Um, we're going to talk about the pediatric assessment triangle in a second, but basically, uh, we've we've ran some statistics. We, you know, the science community. I know you don't believe in science. I don't believe so in science. So, <laughs> but uh, the science community, the medical community, has kind of ran some numbers and found out that like any time that, that there's an issue with this pediatric assessment triangle, it's identified. It was something around like five to ten percent. Well, that's opposite. So 90, 90 to 95% of the time that patient ended up needing advanced care in the ER. So when we see these red flags, understand that the decompensation is happening so quickly, 
you will see failure. We're going to need to intervene mm. and intervene early and aggressively. One thing too, and I'll start, and then we should jump right into the pediatric assessment triangle piece. Now, one, you guys have probably heard some of these things before. Hopefully you have heard these things before. Um, but again, the way we're going to talk about it and the way we go through it, um, I think hopefully simplifies it, takes it back to basics. That's what we do. But one thing I will say is that when assessing a kid, if you think this is just a, I like general rules. I, I always have, like I said, that's why we do this podcast, but I like general rules. If you think a kid is sick, they're, they're sick. Yeah. Just, just go by that. Like you see kids. I mean, even if you don't have your own kids, you're, you're out in the world. Like you see healthy kids every day. Sometimes I think we, and I do this at least in my practice. Like if I see someone in the emergency department because of the context I'm in, I, I am expecting them to not look healthy so that I almost like diminish in my mind how sick they potentially are. Mm -hmm. And I do this with adults too. I realize that like, if I saw, like if I saw an adult, like I'll, I'll walk into an emergency department room and have a patient who's like in pain or something's going on or they, they're, or they're sick. And I'm kind of like, Oh man, like so dramatic. But if I saw that guy like at the bus stop, I'd be like, Oh my gosh, what's wrong with this guy? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so, someone help him. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So even more so with kids, like if you have an inkling, if you're like, ah, you know what? This kid just doesn't look right. They don't. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they probably don't. I mean, I would say they don't even not even probably don't. They for sure don't. Because sure. if you have that idea, if you feel that way, it's usually true. So when we talk about assessment, let's just kind of break down, take it back to basics, go to just how we assess in general. An assessment is broken up in pre-hospital care and in emergency care in a number of ways. The first assessment that you do is also the initial assessment. Now, this is a little bit more, um, it's easier to gear this towards pre-hospital providers, but this is basically, I, you know, I, I joke around a lot and say like, this is like, do they look like crap or do they not look like crap, right? Your initial assessment is basically your first gut impression at the door or, you know, five, six feet away from them impression of how that patient is doing. And that, this is when we can apply the pediatric assessment triangle. And this is where I think we, we mix things up is we think that this, this PAT replaces your ABCDE. It doesn't, it just is something you would do before. And that's right? the thing is, cause like we, we call it the initial assessment. That's not the primary assessment. It's, right. like, it's, it's initial assessment, primary assessment, secondary assessment, which we'll break down. Right. But again, that initial assessment, and I teach this even to like our residents and stuff as well. The initial assessment, like you said, is, is what do you see at the door before you talk to the kid, before you talk to mom, before you do any kind of physical exam, before you touch them, before you've, you, you communicated or engaged with them in any way, shape or form, what is your initial, yeah. you know, and that kind of goes back to what I said, like, if you think they're sick, they're sick, right? And then we're kind of like taking a moment not to leave that up to chance, but to say, okay, I'm going to cognitively take a second to assess this kid this way. I'm not just going to rush in and, and potentially miss that like you said that kind of gut like hmm something's off here right and for those of you nerds out there who are going well you missed scene size up because that happens before initial assessment we freaking know okay <laughs> <laughs> so obviously make sure the scene is safe before you approach make sure you have proper equipment on and then you go ahead and you can get your general impression of the patient mm -hmm. with the initial assessment yes and the initial assessment for a pediatric patient we use what's called the pre pediatric assessment triangle. And this is going to be using ABC, but like, not airway breathing circulation. <laughs> <laughs> airway breathing circulation. Um, it's not that. It is appearance, work of breathing, and circulation. <laughs> so they really only change one. I don't really know why they had yeah. to put work of on there, but whatever. So these are the three things that we want to try to get an idea of as we approach the patient. And these are things that we can do simply by, you know, visualization as we're coming up onto the scene or we're coming up to the vision. This can be done if you're good, 
this can be done in 15, 20 seconds sometimes. Sometimes it takes a little bit more investigation, but it should kind of turn on that index of suspicion of, okay, where, where am I going to look further when it comes to this? And I will say too, like, don't, this is not something that like the more experienced you get, the more it just happens automatically and you don't think about it anymore. If you're not thinking about it, you're not doing it. Yeah. And then it really, I mean, because like you said, if it becomes second nature, you're like, well, I just, I'm sure I'm doing that in my head. No, no, no. You really need in your head to be being like, okay, appearance, circulation, work of breathing. Mm-hmm. And appearance is more of like, think of appearance as more of like neuro. So it's not ABC's airway, breathing, circulation. That's the primary assessment. The initial assessment is literally like mental status, circulation, and breathing. Kind right. of look at it that way. Yep. So what's kind of fun about the pediatric assessment triangle? I don't know if it's fun. That's, pretty, that's <laughs> a pretty nerdy thing. Is that it's not a circle. But uh, <laughs> that's three points. It's <laughs> the strongest shape. No, so if you if you look at, see, I wish we could, let's try to bring up an image on this one if we can. I know that we don't do that too often, but if you guys are, are watching visually, we're going to try to bring up an image for you so that we can show you the triangle. And it's just literally just a triangle that says appearance, breathing, and or work of breathing and circulation on it. But if you look at and you highlight the sides that where you're seeing the symptoms. So if I'm seeing symptoms of, for instance, um, appearance and circulation, but I'm not seeing any symptoms in the breathing side, well, that would tell me that they're most likely in shock. If I highlight just the appearance issue, it's probably like you said, a CNS or a neuro issue. If all three are highlighted, well, I have cardiopulmonary failure at this point, right? This is a big problem. Like my circulatory system is shot. Um, if I just see the top two, so appearance and breathing, then, um, it's most likely that I'm in respiratory failure, right? Mm-hmm. If I just see work of breathing, I'm probably in respiratory distress. So sure. you can kind of, this is kind of new to me. I've, I've used the triangle for years, but seeing kind of the highlighted sections and be like, oh, I can now like subcategorize like what kind of issue I'm looking for is helpful when we get down the line, when we start describing your primary assessment. I'll just throw in here quick. If you, if you, if you listen to us on like Spotify and that kind of thing, all of our, all of these podcasts are also video recorded on YouTube. So you can find us on YouTube, Guardian Test Prep. Um, and then obviously if you go into guardiancme.com to get credit, those are, you'll see our recordings there. So when he says talking about images popping up, we'll probably, we'll do that on our YouTube. So cool. Um, so we'll start with appearance. What are we talking about when we talk about appearance? Like what they look like is what you're saying, right? Mm -hmm. So, and we're, we're also thinking those CNS neuro type symptoms. So the first thing that we talk a lot about is tone. So when I say, what is the, the pediatric patient's tone? What do I mean by that? Well, you mean like kind of like their muscle tone, like are they are they moving around? Are they like laying their limp? You know, I mean that. So we talk about like tone. We're talking about like muscle tone. So the and, worst version of this would be they would be like flaccid. Yeah, right? yeah, right. They're just like laying their limp yeah. as can be, right? Um, and again, like I said, with a lot of this, you're taking you're taking appearance as a whole thing. So you're looking at this kid, like are they acting the way they should act? Are they talking the way they should talk? Are they looking around the way you would expect them to be looking around? And this is why, like, sometimes those are a little bit hard to, like, quantify. But that's where, again, where I say, like, if you're, if you're not sure, if you're like, eh, it's, they're probably not right. in the appropriate state. Right. So we look at tone. Then we look at interactiveness. So this is a pretty simple one, right? Are they interacting with their environment? And this can be, hey, are they making eye contact with you? Are they the appropriate age for this? And are they making eye contact you, with you when you walk into the room? Do they seem to be, is their head moving towards the loud noises in the room? Are they trying to engage with mom? Or are they just completely zoned out looking and, and spaced out? Should any child ever be spaced out and looking out distance, you know, not paying attention to their surroundings? No, there's not really any age that's appropriate for that to happen. Even if you wish there was. Okay, Chris. <laughs> How's everything at home going? Um, next would be consolability. So now kids cry and kids get upset and they can get upset easily. What do we mean by consolability then? Like what, what do we... 
Well, I mean, I think, I think people are like, you recognize like if mom picks the baby up and starts to like hold them, like the crying gets less. Like if this baby's like screaming, crying and like nothing you're doing is making it better. Like something's wrong. I mean, there's right. pain, there's something going on. Like a high pitched cry, like a, and things like that. That's just not going away with, like you said, a change in the environment. That's a concern. They're inconsolable now. Mm-hmm. And that baby's sick. Um, their look or gaze. Again, this kind of goes with the interactiveness, right? If they're zoned out, they're looking in the wrong area, they're not moving towards sounds, things like that, then they're just ignoring their environment because they're exhausted because they're they're decompensating. And then lastly, uh, speech or cry. So is their speech appropriate for the age group? Meaning, do they does it seem like they're altered? Mm-hmm. Um or again, inconsolability with their cry. Does their cry, if they're an infant, so they don't speak, but is their cry off? And who are we going to ask? Who, how are we going to find out if their behavior is off? Well, we're going to ask mom, but not yet, right? Like right. this is an initial assessment piece. Like we're, we're kind of assessing this for ourselves, but yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, if you want to know if a kid's in their normal state or not, you, you ask the parent. I yeah. mean, that's the, those you said mom. I mean, I think you could ask the dad too, or the caregiver. Or no, whoever, I mean, I, as a father, don't ask the dad. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, yeah, I don't know, these, I don't are know things, who this kid is. <laughs> these are things where it's like speech cry, like you, you're checking down your list, you get to speech cry and you're like, that seems off to me kind of. Okay, well, there you go. There's your index of suspicion that increases it. So that there's questions to ask down the road, right? right? As we're approaching, we see these things and then we can start asking questions to mom and dad. Mm-hmm. Um, so next after appearance, we move on to looking at the work of breathing. So this is pretty simple. This is like a normal airway assessment. A lot of times is their airway open and patent? Um, How does it sound? What are their breath sounds like? Now people think, well, you said it's as you're approaching. Well, I'm not saying listen with a stethoscope yet. Right. You can a lot of times hear wheezing or rails or, you know, strider, strider, you know, choking, the lack of breathing, (laughs) you know, things things like that as, as you're approaching. Mm -hmm. Right. So pay attention to those sounds. Um, pediatric patients and we'll cover this in a couple weeks when we do our next part but pediatric patients are like so sensitive to airway problems right we talked about their ability to compensate and their very healthy cardiovascular systems so 90 percent of the time uh pediatric patients code because of an airway issue Mm -hmm. right so they're very sensitive to airway issues and a lot of times you can you can fix an airway issue just by positioning you don't necessarily have to intubate or use crazy aggressive maneuvers they're very sensitive that sort of things because of how their airways work. So sounds be, are a little bit more obvious in a pediatric patient than they would be in an adult, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Yep. Um, other things that we look at abnormal positioning. So is the, is the pediatric patient get a tripod like a COPD or does kind of, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're going to move. You're going to see them position their body and their torso in order to get the most amount of air. That's just a human instinct, right? Like no one who's having like terrible shortness of breath or even a little bit of shortness of breath is like laying back in bed, relaxing usually, right? They're sitting up, they're sitting forward, they're tripoding. Yeah. So we're looking at those. And the other big thing too, is we're looking for retractions. So we're looking for now, if they still have their shirt eyes, this is another reason that when we get in there for our primary assessment, we need to undress the patient. But like, do we see, you know, in, in the clavicle area, do we see retractions? Do we see retractions in their ribs and their belly? Is there, are they belly breathing? Why don't you explain what a retraction is for people who might not know? Sure. So retraction. I do know. I, I, made, it, I made it sound like I don't know what a retraction is. <laughs> I'm going to explain it so people know that I know what a retraction is. Okay, it's when the, like, the skin is pulling to the, uh, basically to the muscle or to, to, the, to the mass of the body of the torso because they're, they're pulling in air and you're creating like a negative pressure. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden the skin is pulling tight. So if you see skin pulling tight in the neck or the clavicles or the sides of the abdomen, 
Those are called retractions. And I knew that. <laughs> good, for you, good for you. Awesome. The other thing we're going to look for too is like, like nasal flaring. Like nasal flaring is another, you know, kids are what we call like obligate nose breathers, especially like infants, I guess more are like obligate mm-hmm. nose breathers. So like they, because of their bigger tongues and we'll, we'll talk about airway things in kids at some point, but because of their bigger tongues and, and that sort of stuff, like they breathe through their nose. So when they're struggling to breathe, you see, you'll see like nasal flaring and things like that more obviously than you would in an adult. Yeah. Kids can also, it's pretty common for them to be belly breathers a little bit. Like you'll see their belly moving in and out when they breathe. What we're looking for a lot of times that's a big risk is if we see like seesaw breathing. So Mm -hmm. if you see their, their chest moving opposite to their belly and it's very significant belly breathing. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a concern, right? That That's an increased work of breathing. Now we're really pulling. We're really using those muscles. Yep. And these are things like we talked about. We don't see this in adult. You don't see nasal flaring in, in an adult. Usually yeah, right? not, we're, we're yeah. mouth breathers. <laughs> right. So um, you're not going to see retractions in an adult as much. I mean, cause you've had fatty tissue buildup and muscle development and things like that. You're just not going to see those things. So that's why, you know, Babies, kids are not small adults. We're warning new assessment techniques for them. So why don't you take us through circulation now? Sure. So we did appearance. We did worker breathing. Now circulation. And again, like we're taking a lot of time to talk about these. But as you said earlier, it's not difficult. You could be like appearance. Okay. Yeah, that looks good. Breathing, worker breathing. Um, Yeah. Okay. This, okay. Good. And circulation. So circulation, again, we're not getting a blood pressure. We're not like listening to the heart sounds. We're not even checking a pulse at this point. We are looking at what can we see from the door from a circulation standpoint. And that's usually going to be like color, right? Mm-hmm. So that's going to be, do they look pale? Do they look flushed? Do they look, you know, I mean, do they look gray? You know, I mean, these types of things, right? So we're going to be looking at their, their general color. And then we're going to be looking as a part of their color. Like, do we see modeling? So modeling is where like you have like, like almost like purplish gray spots. With patchiness. Yeah, like patchiness. It's very hard to explain. If you've it seen, is, model, yeah. you'll know it. Look it up. Google modeling. Google that's modeling. your homework. Uh, it's like, not yeah, modeling. It's like, I mean, you can Google modeling, but we're talking about modeling. With the modeling. 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 Don't look up like, I don't know, these guys look great. Don't look up babies modeling. <laughs> Baby models. They look great. Their color is excellent. No. Uh, modeling. So, um, like I said, it, it's kind of like this, like, like patchy discoloration of, of tissue. And, mm-hmm. and it's because, like I said, circulatory wise, things are shifting. So some areas are getting perfusion, some are not, even in the skin. And then cyanosis. So cyanosis, like lack of perfusion is going to show up like, you know, blue tissue, um, gray, you know, blue, gray. Again, it's all, this is all based on color. So what Cyan is, meaning blue. So yeah, cyanosis. Mm-hmm. People forget that. People always be like, are they pale? They're, they're pale and they have cyanosis when they give scenarios and stuff like that. And it's like, they can't really have both. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's I guess true. you can have like lack of pigment and then also the pigment's blue, but that's a good, good. Another point though is, what happens if you have someone who has like a darker skin, like a darker pigment to them? How am I going to notice pallor modeling, cyanosis, things like that? Where would I look for that? Well, you're still, a lot of times you still will see it. You know what I mean? Like it's a little bit harder to see. But the other thing you can look is like, look at their mucous membranes, right? So you're looking at like their lips, you're looking at, you know, like their ears and things like that. Like where there's, where the, where the tissue is thin, right? Mm-hmm. Is where you're going to see that. And you can look at eyes. Um, Nose, head, shoulders. I was going to do it. I was waiting for. Okay. Anyway, no, but like, yeah, mucous membranes. So areas where the the skin is thin, and then also the literal mucous membranes. Your your eyes, nose, yeah. inside of the mouth, like underneath the lips. Again, that's an assessment thing mm-hmm. that we we start to notice. Hey, they look a little bit dusky. We're going to move towards them now, and then we're going to re you know 
identify these things or further identify these things in our primary assessment. And you so. can see now, so that's the pediatric assessment triangle, right? We've got we've got the appearance, we've got work of breathing, we've got we haven't even touched the patient, we have an assessment, but we can already say, do we think this kid is sick or are they not sick based on our pediatric assessment triangle? And we can already start to say, okay, I think this might be a respiratory issue or I think this might be a circulatory issue, right? Because these are the two things we're trying to delineate from as we work through this thing. Are they sick? Are they not sick? Do I think it's a breathing issue or do I think it's a circulatory issue or shock? Because those are the two things that are going to put a kid into cardiac arrest, respiratory issues and shock. So are there lots of other things that kids can suffer from? Yes. What are the emergent things though? And 99% of the time it's going to be one of those. Right. People think that like PALS and PEP and stuff like that is basically ACLS for pediatric patients. And right. it's not, right? ACLS is advanced cardiac life support. Right. PALS is pediatric advanced life support, right? They're, they're not, we're not talking about cardiac rhythms as much in PALS because that's, we're way behind the eight ball if we got, to, if we got that far. Right. And the reason that they're going into dysrhythmias and stuff isn't because they have an unhealthy heart. It's because they most likely are suffering from a respiratory or shock issue. Exactly. Right? Yep. So we start to kind of piece that together with using this triangle. So then we would move on to our primary assessment. So we've done our, our initial assessment. Now we're on our primary assessment. We've approached the patient. We want to tick off the life threats. And this is the same thing that we do with adults in terms of, you know, listing the, the process. So we're going to check the airway, your A, B, C, D, E, right? Mm -hmm. The airway, is it patent? Is it open? Is there an obstruction? They're breathing. We've already looked at their work of breathing. Now we can look a little deeper if we'd like, right? Their circulation, this is when we can check a quick pulse. We can get a pulse rate, things like that. Their disability, this is the, the D and the E is what everyone forgets. Disability would be we're looking for like neurostatus issues, right? So this is where we could rule out things like blood sugar. Uh, we could rule out things like uh, head trauma. Uh, that's causing some sort of neuro change. And again, who are we going to talk to to discover disability issues? We're probably going to talk to the parent, right? Mm -hmm. Especially depending on the age of the child, right? Yeah. Um, and then E is exposures. So exposures would be what in their environment could have potentially caused issue. Is there trauma involved? Was there a poisoning? Um, am I concerned about burns. electrolyte imbalance? Yeah. Is there burns? What am I? What am I looking at on the outside of this? Mm -hmm. Yep. Exactly. And again, those A, B, C, D, E. So we're doing we're doing the same thing. So we're starting with airway. Is it patent or not? The best way to tell if a airway is patent is, is the child talking, making noise, that type of thing a lot of times, right? Breathing, now we're listening to the lungs. Do we hear wheezing? Do we hear, do we hear rails, ronchi, you know, strider, all that kind of stuff? We're reassessing their work of breathing. We're getting a pulse ox, things like that. C, circulation. Okay, blood pressure. Capillary refill. So that's one I want to talk about with kids. So we really should be probably trying to do capillary refill on everyone. But if you're someone who has COPD or emphysema or coronary artery disease, like your capillary refill may not be very accurate. And if it's cold outside, like our sister Kendra has like poor circulation in her fingers in general. Mm -hmm. If I was judging my assessment only on capillary refill right, on right. her as an adult, she'd go to the hospital every day. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> but in children, capillary refill is a very, um, can be a very obvious and, and missed sign of circulatory issues. So you want to talk about capillary refill? Yeah, it's it's assessment of the peripheral perfusion. Uh, you basically just squeeze the finger or push on the nail bed, and then you're looking for that color to return, right? So we're seeing that there's a lack of color as we push it, we depress it, there's some pallor there, and then we're looking for that red or pink to, to rush back to that area. And it shows us, you know, as distance as we can be from the heart, you know, at, at the tip of the finger, we're seeing where, where our perfusion is at, where the fluid flow right. is at. Um, if it's less than two seconds, so if it takes longer than two seconds for that color to come back to the nail bed, that would be a 
what am I trying to say? Like like a unstable patient. I increased mean, capillary refill, which is a, which shows that there's a circulatory issue. You'd, yeah, you'd have a delay circulatory filling time in the sense that like oh uh oh we're not getting the perfusion to that area as fast as we want. Exactly. So and that's it's a really good thing to assess because we talked about how kids compensate really really well, right? So their blood pressure is not going to be a good. That's going to be a late finding if their blood pressure is getting low for their age group. That's going to be a very late finding of circulatory compromise. Capillary refill, though, could be an earlier sign. Absolutely. Um, and with kids, because they do, we, say, we, we like to say sometimes that they hide things. And it's not that they're like purpose, but because they compensate so well, sometimes it may be only one of these little things that is your only clue in that, hey, you know, there's a circulatory issue. So let's say you did your, your pediatric assessment triangle and you're like, oh, they maybe look a little bit, of, they look pale, but it's also winter in Michigan. And I don't know, like maybe something's wrong, maybe it's not, but I'm clued into that. Now their worker breathing's fine, their airway sounds good, it's patent, their blood pressure's nice and stable, their heart rate seems fine, but then you do capillary refill and it's three seconds. Well now, I thought the kid was pale and I've got a delayed capillary refill, now I'm very much clued in on like, okay, there. I think there might be a circulatory issue here. Mm-hmm. I haven't figured out what it is yet, but there might be something... Those are very easily missed. Mm-hmm. If you didn't look at, if you didn't take the time to really think about like, do they look pale, and you didn't check capillary refill, you you would have missed it at this point, right? Like you wouldn't have found it. So again, circulation, then disability. Um, and the disability exam we like to use is the AVPU scale. Yeah, I was going to say this. So if we're dealing with an adult, we want to know if they're alert and oriented, right? That's one of the easiest ways that we can kind of check for, for disability. You're not going to ask a kid, like, who's the president of the United States? Like, where are you right now? What's your address? You know what I mean? You're not, especially like a child who doesn't I'm talk. Like, here's a question for you. <laughs> Kingdom, phylum, class, order, what comes next? There you, <laughs> there you go. So when you can't ask a child this, AVPU or the AVPU score is a lot easier to kind of use as a quick, mm-hmm. uh, a quick categorization of where they're at in terms of disability. So the AVPU scale is A, you know, um, they're fully alert. Alert means they're fully alert. V means that they're only responsive to verbal stimuli. So P that they're only responsive to painful stimuli and you they're unresponsive. Yeah. So, so the verbal stimuli would be like when we were talking about interactiveness and like speech cry, right? If like you start talking or there's a loud noise in the room or whatever, and they're, they're looking up and making eye contact with you. Okay. Well, they're, they're responsive to verbal stimulus. It doesn't mean that they have to give a verbal response. True. And that's where people kind of mix things up. So they don't have to give a verbal response. They need to be responsive to verbal stimulus. Like if you walk in the room, you're like, hi, I'm Dr. Seitz. What's your name? He's like, my name's Jimmy. And you're like, verbal. Like that's how that kid's alert. Cool. And then like I said, again, with exposure, and this is really, really important. And when we talk about exposure, we're talking about assessing exposures the child may have had. Like mm-hmm. you said, like, you know, burns, hypothermia, like what's, the, what's their temperature? This is a good time to like think about temperature. Um, I usually think temperature, I think skin. So trauma, you know, burns, things like that. But it also reminds me that if I haven't yet, and I should have in the very beginning, but if I haven't yet, I need to expose the patient. Like you're not going to see retractions. You're not going to see some of this stuff unless you're like, you know, looking under the shirt and that sort of thing. There's been a lot of times where I've walked into a room and kids work of breathing looked perfectly fine from the door. But then when I lift the shirt up, they're belly breathing. And that was my only, that was my only clue or sign. So again, keeping that in mind. So that's your price. So you did your initial assessment right? The initial assessment was the PAT triangle, PDX assessment triangle. Then you do your primary second assessment, excuse me, primary assessment, which is ABCDE. Um, and again, now we get to the end of our primary assessment. We're asking ourselves the same questions. Is this kid sick? 
or are they and are, are they not sick like maybe the pat triangle was fine and i get through my a b c d e and they're still fine okay i still don't i'm still not finding any signs i'm not done yet <laughs> but right. i haven't found anything yet or i'm saying yes i think this kid's sick and again i'm asking myself do i think it's respiratory or do i think it's shock and i may not know i may say ah, you know what i think there's respiratory or there's also some shock it may be both uh, but again, we're trying to zero in on like, because we're going to eventually get to the point where like, how am I going to intervene if right. I need to intervene? Yeah. It's not just like, I'll oh, be sick and then we're done. Let's right. go to the hospital. Right. We're going to try to figure out what's going on. And I guess the primary what, assessment, a lot of times we say is like, we're, we're assessing for initial life threats and that's whether it's an adult or a pediatric, right? We're ruling out the big life threats. Is there airway patent? It's not. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to jump on that right away. Right? That's I'm what I was going to say. That, we got that problem. Like, if right? you run into an issue in the primary assessment, you're going to do something about it. Right. So once we've kind of ruled out those life threats, and I think you transitioned very well talking about, hey, we need to make sure we do like a head to toe, we need to do a physical exam, that's where, where our secondary assessment comes in. So I always like to say that the secondary assessment is like your information gathering stage now, right? We've ruled out the life threats, we've decided if the if the baby's sick or not sick, or the kid is sick or not sick. And what we mean by that, guys, really is just is the... If we were comparing it to an adult, it would be st stability versus instability, right? Mm -hmm. Are they compensating? Are they decompensating? Where are we at with that? This is one thing I'll throw in really quick, too, because in the primary assessments, also where we're going to start interventions um, and reassessment becomes a key piece here already. So if I if I come if I come and your airway is not patent and I position your airway with a you know jaw thrust or, you know, that type of thing, and now it's patent. Like I said, I, I have to start that over. So if your airway is patent and then I go to your breathing and I find out that you're hypoxic at 88%, I'm going to put you on oxygen. I'm not going to move on to circulation. I'm going to go back, make sure your airway is still so, patent, yeah. go back to your breathing. Did that change, right? Like when I do something, I need to see if it made a difference. Mm -hmm. So now is your pulse ox better? Is your work of breathing better? Good. Okay, cool. Yes, it is. Now I'm going to move on to circulation. Yeah. These types of things. So again, we're going to intervene. And as we intervene, as soon as we do any type of intervention, we want to start over again with that primary assessment and reassess as we go through. And I see this happens a lot of times, like when we teach like PALS courses uh, and do trainings is that people, there's a, sometimes a, if a kid's critically ill, there's a lot to do in that primary assessment. And then they never make it to the secondary assessment because they've already done so much. They think that kind mm -hmm. of the case is over and, mm -hmm. and that's not, not the case we need to do. We still need to go on and do that secondary assessment. Yeah. So the secondary assessment, like I said, information gathering, this is when we're going to, we're going to gather information in two ways. We're going to ask questions and we're going to use tools, right? We're going to measure things. So we're going to get vital signs. That's our tools. Simple as that. And we're going to get very similar vital signs. There are vital signs that are a little bit more important. Like you were saying, like cap refill, you can kind of consider more towards a vital sign here. And it's probably going to be more valuable than a blood pressure at this point, because it gives us a better picture of their, their compensation value. Um, we might want to use, if, if we're suspecting a respiratory emergency, we might be more apt to use things like capnography and stuff like that to kind of get a waveform and figure out what's going on, especially with asthmatics and things like that. Um, but then the other way that we gather information is we ask questions. And this is where things get difficult in pediatric calls. It's why we had all of this stuff leading up to this to kind of help us out is you can't necessarily uh, get a sample history on a child for one of two reasons. One, they cannot give you the history themselves, right? They can't tell you what their signs and symptoms are because they, mm -hmm. they have trouble communicating because of their development stage. Or two, they just don't have a history, right? If I ask, you know, even if I ask mom and dad, hey, you know, do they have any allergies? Chances are the answer is going to be no because they haven't lived a long enough life to discover if they have allergies, mm -hmm. right? So this is where, you know, I think you, you rely heavily on the signs and symptoms and less on, you know, 
information that we've gathered and we're checking boxes, we're writing their history and their medication list, right? Like most children aren't on a plethora of medications. They shouldn't be, right? Because they're young and healthy. So, but this is where involvement with the parents or the caregiver or the person on scene, you know, the the, the touch point for them is going to be important. So we're going to talk about uh, sample history and then with that OPQRST if there's pain, right? So sample is stands for signs and symptoms. We've already kind of checked that off. Are do they have any allergies? Are they taking any medications? Um, past pertinent medical history. So have they had any medical history in the past? And They're, then include the past history will include a birth history too. Were they premature? Depending on their age, right? Like were mm-hmm. they premature? Did they have any issues right after they were born? So make sure to ask those questions too. Did you have any complications in pregnancy, especially if it's an infant or like a, a young child? Those are those can be sometimes a good clue. And like if they had, you know, respiratory issues because of different conditions, because they were premature. And now you've got a six week old who's, you know, seems to be having respiratory. You got these, these things do clue you in more. Well, it's funny you say that because even with a delivery, you know what I mean? We're doing a pediatric assessment on a newborn now. And that, that comes into play too. Mm-hmm. Hey mom, have you had prenatal care? Like, was there an expected complication in this, in this delivery yeah. or anything like that? Right. You can get a lot of information that way. The last oral intake this would be like what have they what did they last take or eat um, with children and especially with babies, um, infants. You know how they're feeding is really important to like how their health has been lately, right? So mm-hmm. if they have had poor feeding recently, that's a good sign that hey this this child has been sick for a while. Like when was the last time they were feeding normally? Okay, well this child's been sick for a couple of days now. Well they could have been compensating for a very long time, and now I'm looking for a crash. Right. Um, so last oral intake is very important. And then E, the events leading up to the incident. So, hey, mom, when did you notice the change? What's going on? And she's like, right after he fell off the roof. And you're like, oh. There you go, easy assessment, <laughs> right? So, and that brings me to the second part is we do need to do a head-to-toe exam. Yeah. Right, we need to go head-to-toe. We need to check everything. Um, and this isn't just for traumas. This is for medicals, too. Um, EMS 2020 just recently did a case that I was reviewing uh, when we were putting it on the LMS where major things were missed because the medic and EMT failed to just do a physical exam, you know, on a car accident of all things, right? So it is interesting. I do think that we get into these habits and we kind of, yeah, we check this box or I've done this before. I'm already, I have this suspicion based on my assumptions on what's going on. We don't verify. There's a case too, when again, it's a PALS case in the PALS uh, AHA guidelines where the child, so if you you go through the PAC assessment triangle and you notice that they have some kind of neuro and respiratory issues and, and you, you intervene on those, you do your primary assessment, you give the, you realize that the patient has some circulatory issues as well. So you start giving them some fluids, you start like, you know, you, you do all these interventions, but you really don't know what's going on. And then when you get to the head or toe exam, you end up in this, in the case, you end up finding head trauma. So, but what's cool about it is that you've already addressed the life threat. You've already addressed address the circulatory status, you've already addressed the respiratory status in your PAT and primary assessment triangle. So you eventually get to the point where you figure out like, oh, okay, head trauma, that's why I'm seeing these things. But even if you hadn't, you've still intervened correctly because you went through the systematic approach. And that's why this is so powerful is to do this systematically and to do it this way every time. Because right. we've already said like there's, mm-hmm. it's very easy to miss these little things and again, time is, you know, time is brain, time is heart. You hear all these things all the time, right? Like with kids, like when they decompensate, they're going to decompensate quick. So we really want to try to intervene as early as possible. Yeah. And kids will keep things from you that you might not discover until the physical exam anyway. You know what I mean? Like, like your wallet, your phone, <laughs> so, your headphones. <laughs> um, 
Chris is having a rough time <laughs> during the holiday season right now. No, but they, you know, so as an example, when I was younger, I had strep throat for like a week and ended up getting scarlet fever developed from it because I like just didn't tell our mom that I wasn't feeling good. Right. It was just like, oh, I'm just playing and I'm doing fine. Right. So like young, young kids, you know, we, we might not notice that there's an injury until we do a physical exam because they're not telling us about it. And okay, now we notice wincing. Hey, what will happen to your knee? You know what I mean? Right. Or, or whatever. So just because we get a sample and we get events leading up to the incident, well, we're getting the events most likely from parents, they don't necessarily know. What if they were out in the yard and we don't know, right? Right. And then we get to that, oh, he, hey, he's wincing when we're touching around the knee. Well, this tells me that there's something going on, right? Mm-hmm. And then lastly, with this pain, if your sign and symptom is pain, typically in an adult, we would do an OPQRST assessment, and that stands for the onset of the pain, the provocation, does anything make it worse or better, the quality, how would you describe the pain, of uh, the severity, um, no, radiation, sorry, I missed R, radiation, is it traveling anywhere, S, severity, and then T, time, how long it's been going on for. And the difference between onset and time would be like, when did it start versus how long ago was that, right? Mm-hmm. Now, is it going to be easy to ask these questions to a pediatric patient? Depending on the age, probably not, right? You're not really going to be able to be like, hey, you know, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the worst pain in your life, how bad is this? It's like, well, my life has been three years, <laughs> so it's the worst, you know? So that's hard to do. But you can get ideas from parents to, does this seem like an overreaction? Not overreaction, that's a bad word. Does this seem like a uh, yeah, I get, the excessive response, like, you know? Yeah, does it seem like an appropriate response to the what you witnessed as the injury or right. that kind of thing? You know, that's, yeah. Cool. So that brings us then to kind of our identification stage and figuring out now we have this information, what are we going to do with it? And we're going to get into this in, in the following weeks um, when we start talking about pediatric airway emergencies, Peter shock emergencies, and then we might get into a little bit of cardiac stuff, even though it's rare. Um, but now we need to identify, okay, is it a respiratory issue or is it a shock issue? And what we're going to get into in the following weeks is, so it's a respiratory issue. Let's say we've discovered that using our PAT and good primary and secondary assessment. What kind of respiratory issue is it? Is this patient stable or unstable? So is it distress mm-hmm. or is it failure? Do I see compensation with it or do I see decompensation? And we'll talk a little bit when we begin in a couple of weeks here about what those differences are, you know, signs and symptoms that lean more towards the stress versus failure. And we'll kind of, we'll kind of get into that. And then we'll break it down into really four categories of airway emergencies that you're going to see. And then the most common emergencies within those four categories. And that's what we'll talk about. The other th- side of it is if we don't think it's a respiratory issue, it's most likely a shock issue. Um, so in the following weeks after that, we'll talk about, Okay, so what type of shock do we think it is based on what we're seeing? And then is that patient compensating or decompensating? So again, stable or unstable, are they crashing? And do I need to intervene very quickly and aggressively? Right. Um, and that is assessment. Yep, for exactly. So again, just to emphasize, you're doing the pediatric assessment triangle. You're, that's your initial assessment. You're going on to your primary assessment then your secondary assessment. And you're doing this systematically. And, and I really want to encourage our listeners to, to do this every time. When I started to actually use this in my own like clinical practice as an emergency physician, I started to realize like, man, like I feel confident now saying, yes, this kid has an issue that maybe I haven't figured out yet, but I need to keep looking or, you know what? No, I think this kid is okay for now and we can do some other tests and other diagnostic things or send them to see their primary doctor and things like that. And you'll gain such a confidence in being able to assess children because what you don't want to do is, is kind of like quote unquote, do your best and then be like, well, I, I hope I didn't miss anything. Like if you do this, you really are not going to miss anything. I mean, there really is like not much left on the table if you go through this systematically and you will pick up on things 
that really can make a huge difference in terms of morbidity and mortality for for these kids. I mean, I'm not going to share them right now. And I probably shared them before, though. But like there have been cases where like before I did this type of more systematic approach, like I did miss a thing here or there. And I was like, oh, man, like would I have caught that had I gone through this? And probably, you know, and that. So I just want to encourage you guys to it shouldn't become second nature. And if you find yourself not going through each step independently, take it back to basics again. Like that's why taking it back to basics is so important because you don't want to basically have this stuff become quote unquote second nature. And then you start to miss steps, especially when you're talking about kids, especially when you're trying to talk about assessing them for life threatening emergencies. Um, so yeah, so that's the, that's the big summary right there. Yeah. Don't get complacent. I think is what you're saying. Yeah. Right? Don't get complacent with it. And you can trust your, you can trust your system so long as you utilize it. Yeah. Right. So we, we've built out a system. I say we, you know, pals, AHA, PEP, right. You know, the, the medical community has built out a very nice system for you to be able to assess a child, use it, and then mm-hmm. be confident in it. Yeah, absolutely. So we appreciate you guys taking the time to listen. Again, in the next coming weeks here, we're going to go a little bit farther into this and start talking about, like, what are those respiratory, what are those shock-like stakes in kids? Um, but again, if you want to get credits for this, go to guardiancme.com. Uh, check us out there. Sign up. You can listen to this. Take a quick quiz. You better believe the pH assessment triangle and all that sample history and stuff will be on there. Pass that quiz, get some CAPSI credits, uh, 100% free. Uh, we're really excited to be offering that. Um, thank you guys so much. And Jason, you have anything else? No, just all right. stay sweet. Cool. Hey guys, thanks so much for taking a listen. Uh, if you are studying for the National Registry exam, we're here to help. We have a National Registry prep program uh, to help you pass that exam. Check us out at guardiantestprep.com. If you'd like continuing education credits uh, for listening to our podcast or watching this on YouTube, follow us at guardiancme.com. 100% free CAPSI credits. Uh, no matter what state or country you're in, uh, we're here to help. So again, we thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a wonderful week.